0: There's lots of ways to skin that cat, but we need to remember as the workload increases, our tissue capacity needs to keep pace with it. And normally with these injuries, these overuse injuries, it's as simple as the workload exceeded the tissue capacity. Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford.
1: Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. This is episode number 187. My guest today is Brad Beer. He's a physio and a physio to probably a lot of names that you've heard in the triathlon world, the swimming world, the surf Ironman world, and uh, and probably the running world as well. And not only that, you're a, a pretty well-experienced runner and triathlete as well. So Brad, welcome to the show. Brenton, thank you very much. So your uh, your background as a, as a physio has provided you with a lot of experience working with Athletes of all levels, from probably fairly beginner level, but up to a, a lot of professional triathletes, and and on from there. You'd be um, you've been the head physio at the um, Super League Triathlon, worked with the Bahrain Endurance Team. So, what what are some of these things that you've uh, experienced and seen working with some of these guys from the at the very top?
0: Yeah, it's been a really great experience. it has been many great experiences, Brenton, and there's a few observations that. I know you would observe too with your work uh, with some of the pointy end swimmers. One is they're just so committed Uh, 2 they're very intentional. Uh, And three, it's interesting. Sometimes the best performances seemingly come from the athlete. That's the most relaxed on the start line. Uh, And that doesn't mean they're falling asleep, but you know, there's a a confidence within them. They know they've done the work. They're well-prepared. So I always find that quite intriguing to, be able to observe from behind the scenes what an athlete's, you know, mental state is like before they take to the start line. So, there's, you know, there's, there are a couple of immediate thoughts, Brenton, and and it's just, it's always just nice to to see that they're very intentional about recovery, uh, highly, particularly the triathletes, highly attuned to data and workload. So they they're they're very athletically intelligent athletes the triathletes they're really Mm. tuned in is there any sort of
1: common uh, trends that you see at at that level whether it's with the the triathletes or the the swimmers or the surf ironman any sort of common trends you see with um injuries like what time of the season are they getting them are there some common ones that you see happen as a result of some mistakes that could be avoided those sorts of things
0: yeah definitely one would very clearly be brenton on the other side of the off season uh as an athlete matures in years an endurance athlete uh some athletes will take two weeks off some will take four weeks after an olympic cycle you often see as you recall and you know from the swimming the swimming world often it's you know maybe four weeks off of complete nothing because of that four-year buildup or five-year buildup for tokyo <laughs> but uh one of the things you see with a complete off season, where the athlete completely stops is on return to training for the running based athlete. So distance runner or triathlete can absolutely be a swimmer as well. Or cyclist uh, is some onset of often soft tissue related injuries with the return to loading. And that's because across the two, four or more weeks of cessation of training, there's some tissue deconditioning that happens. And then with resumption of the training load, once the load exceeds that local tissue tolerance, you might see an Achilles tendon become a bit sore or a rotator cuff in the shoulder. So that's definitely one time when athletes need to get it right, coming back from the off-season to the start of training. And the other side of that is definitely towards the end of a long year of or long season where an athlete's been doing the training but also required to you know, race X amount of times the triathlete's might end up racing almost every weekend uh, as they're into their World Series, World Triathlon Series events and events in between at the end of the year, Super League events, etc. So then you start to see that cumulative effect of workloads across a whole season, and that can also produce your soft tissue injuries, uh, your bony stress injuries as well.
1: And I think that's probably relevant to at least us here in Australia at the moment. We're getting locked down left, right, and center for a week or two weeks. Like it's it's on and off. And and I experienced this just last lockdown. We had I think about two weeks out of the pool, came back and just didn't really give it much thought. Like I just went back to the same intensity that I was doing prior to that, and like, I'm feeling it in my shoulders. I uh, just went a little bit too hard too early, and that was from just two weeks off. So what's the what's the answer there? What's the solution for? Um, how do you avoid those, uh, those injuries when you do take that bit of time out of the water?
0: Yeah. And we, we would all recognize that there needs to be a psychological refresh at some point. So Hmm. the tapering and recovery experts all agree, there has to be a down phase in the season or the calendar year. So if we make peace with this is it's not bad for someone to have a break. uh, But as you say, there are key things to be mindful of on the return and, one is it's a progressive return to training workload. So we try and avoid the, the rules of twos, the rules being too hard, too quick, too soon, too much. You know, we, I think we come back from an off season, either really pumped up to get into it or um, sometimes a little bit like I could have had longer off. But typically, I think most athletes are pretty motivated. So they come back ready to get into it and have their best season ever. Uh, either they're building on a good year or they're trying to redeem themselves from a season that didn't go well. Right. <laughs> um, so that's one consideration is just being aware of progressively increasing your workload. If it's running related, if it's running specific injuries, we're trying to minimize Brenton. We know that it's the magnitude of bone load. That's more important than the number of loading cycles in the risk of bone stress injury development. So uh how that practically might look is an athlete returns to running a triathlete, for example, after some time off, restore the volume, uh, the minutes of training for the running, say it's five hours a week or eight or 10 hours, whatever it may be three hours before that athlete starts to add intensity because it's the magnitude of bone load, which is a function of the speed of running. That is the greater risk for a bone stress injury. So that's a key principle that athletes should be trying to not violate, uh, And the other part of trying to minimize injuries on return from an off-season would be the tissue capacity of our bodies. So when we have a break, it down-regulates. We do get deconditioning locally and more globally. So as the workload's increasing, the body's tissue's capacity, which you can think of in very simple terms as the strength, if you like, of the body or the tissues, needs to be increasing as well. So that's a progressive uh, it's attempt to be doing some strength and conditioning work. Now that can be as simple as poolside work for a, you know, a swimming athlete, gym work for a, any endurance athlete, home programs. There's lots of ways to skin that cat, but we need to remember as the workload increases, our tissue capacity needs to keep pace with it. And normally with these injuries, these overuse injuries, it's as simple as the workload exceeded the tissue capacity. And, and what about strength uh,
1: versus mobility? If you uh, were to prescribe, if you had to say, uh, let's say it was an hour a week, uh, how much of each one would we want to be doing? And obviously it's going to be different for different people, but where does that sort of, where's that sweet spot typically lie on, on how much of each and how do they go together?
0: Yeah, such a great question. And it's always going to be individualized. We all recognize that, but just to sort of, give a conceptualized answer. Uh, The remembering what we just shared, and that is that it's the deficit in tissue capacity, which is primarily a strength or a weakness of certain tissues that presents the problem. It's not typically because an athlete's gotten stiff on an off season or during the season. It's because the workload's gone up and the tissue capacity rotated calf, calf muscles that affect the Achilles tendon. Muscles on the side of the hip that affect the, hand, the tendon on the side of the hip, they have not kept pace. So if an athlete had an hour a week, and I know it's a fun little game, uh, I would love them to spend 60 minutes of the 60 minutes available working on tissue capacity, endurance, tolerance, and all those factors. Now, that is not saying that a bit of mobility work hurts or isn't important, uh, but it's just stating how important the strength and conditioning element is for an endurance athlete. If they only yeah, had one hour. Yeah, uh, that's good.
1: That's really good. Uh, and you host a podcast yourself, the Physical Performance Show. You've had a lot of elite athletes on there as well, from you know, runners and uh, and swimmers as well as, as, well as triathletes. And uh, with those those guests, has there been anything that's uh, come out in conversation that's uh, perhaps surprised you or um, that you know, has, has led you to taking uh, that on board and implementing that as part of your sort of physio practice or how you go about your own training? Has there been any examples of that?
0: Can I give you two things, Brenton? You certainly can. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first would be, it's always, we ask one set question, two actually at the end uh, of the show. And one is, what's one key piece of advice you could dispense to help people listen in, perform at their best? And whether it's a featured expert, athlete, coach, it's surprising but not surprising at the same time how common people talk about commonly people talk about consistency and being consistent. Uh, and it's 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 kind of almost fun to hear because we know it's important, but I don't think we can be reminded enough on how important it is. Uh, so that would be one of the key themes that's emerged across the five years of sort of weekly outputted episodes. The other key theme, Brenton, which I've certainly taken on board as a practicing clinician, a sports physio, but also as a uh, keen recreational, recreationally competitive athlete is just the importance of fueling. Uh, And if we talk about ways to try and minimize injuries, well, arguably this is probably the biggest emergent theme for endurance athletes in the last decade of sports medicine. Uh, And that is, as an athlete's workload goes up, their fueling needs to keep pace. Uh, it really affects things like bone stress injury risk. If an athlete has three or four indicators of low energy availability, then they are at 15 times greater risk of developing a bone stress injury. And how often do you see elite runners, triathletes succumb to a bone stress injury that really cruels their season and all that momentum behind it? Uh, we featured some key minds on this Uh dietetic experts, uh, physiologists, and it's a common theme. And and the the summary of how to fuel for your training is fuel for the work required. So if your workload goes up, athlete A, B, or C, please fuel accordingly. We often don't change our eating patterns much, yet it's not difficult for a triathlete, for example, to go from 10 hours of training a week to 15 hours. There's a one-third greater demand on the body for fueling Yet we wouldn't eat necessarily thirty percent more, so that deficit can quickly add up, and it can really in result in an increased risk of injury, and it can certainly decrease performance as well. Which is just, you know, it's just it's comical in the sense, not comical in the the, the outcomes, but comical in the sense that we're training harder to try and improve performance, but we have a handbrake on it because we don't have a, enough fuel on board to, to to power the adaptations to the workload. Is there a couple of things that you would
1: uh, keep in mind when it comes to the fueling in regards to um, like eating beforehand what's more is it more important to make sure you eat afterwards and, and refuel like where does where does that lie um, for you and what you've you've found
0: yeah it's it's in this is certainly a sports view this is not my department but uh, in learning from the guests that we've featured, One of the key things is fueling before sessions. So I grew up like you did, Brenton, swim training in Australia. We'd be at the pool at whatever time in the morning, often straight out of bed. Most times I wouldn't eat something before training. Uh, And this year I turned, last year I turned 40 and I wanted to tick off an Ironman uh, as, as as a lifelong goal. So I did one several weeks ago. And in the lead up to that, I'd had a few bone stress injuries, Brenton. So I was very aware of making sure my fueling was where it needed to be to try and avoid another bone stress injury. So uh, I was very intentional about eating before every session, eating after. And then something I often tell athletes as they recover from a bone stress injury is eat more than you think you need. So we underestimate how much fuel we need. It's very difficult to eat enough uh, when you're doing 10 hours plus a week of training. So I'm, you know, uh, personally, sort of sticking food in my face most chances I get yeah
1: <laughs> and what about now has that changed since uh, completing the Ironman what sort of training volume are you doing at the at the yeah. moment
0: yeah well it's going from sort of 15 hours a week Brenton to around anywhere from 8 to 12 at the moment so it was meant to be the Gold Coast Marathon this weekend but sadly as many people be, be aware that got cancelled with COVID a quick note from our sponsor
2: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Form Swim Goggles. With these goggles, you don't have to look at the pace clock anymore, or be one of those swimmers in the pool always grabbing for their watch. With Form Smart Swim Goggles, you can see all of your key metrics while you're swimming, distance, pace, stroke rate, they've got it all. And the swim data is displayed on the goggle lens, and you can customize the display to see the metrics that you want to. And I was worried that it was gonna be distracting, but you can literally see through the display, the metrics are always there, but you have to choose to focus on them. It's really impressive and it makes hitting intervals, or any kind of specific training, much more manageable and achievable. And the goggles track it all, it's automated, so from the time you start your session to the end of the swim, you don't have to press any buttons in between. It automatically tracks everything. Form also works with a bunch of the best pro athletes out there, including Lionel Sanders, Sarah Crowley, Hannah Wells, and Olympic champion, Usama Maluli, to name a few. These Form goggles are for all types of swimming too. One pair of goggles, and you can use them in the pool, the open water you can use them in swim spas and endless pools too so the same pair of goggles can be used in all of these different environments. The battery life is incredible too, one hour charge is 16 hours of swimming time battery life and you can have the display on either your right or your left eye. The goggles themselves come with anti-fog solution that's used in dive masks so it's great in terms of quality and there's a protective case with a nifty drainage solution so after you swim you can store them safely. And while the goggles connect to the Form Swim app on your smartphone too, they will sync with the Form app and there you can review all of the details of your swim and you can see what other swimmers are up to in the Form Swim community as well. I'm a big fan of these goggles. I was really impressed when I used them and I use them for a vast majority of the sessions that I'm currently doing. To find out more about the Form Swim goggles, go to formswim.com and you can use our coupon code EFFORTLESS at checkout and save $15 off your order.
1: Back to the podcast. And with your, um, so you you were competing in triathlons uh, at least like sort of nine, 10 years ago. You were, I think it was Australian age group champion for Olympic distance, 30 to 34 year olds. Yeah. Correct. Yep. Uh, so you're pretty yeah, well experienced um, triathlete. What was your background in, in swimming? Did you grow up as a kid swimming? And um, yeah, it was it was just something you had to take up as an
0: adult? I was fortunate to get into a pool the moment I wanted to start doing triathlon. So we both know that if you start later, it can be a bit more challenging to to come up to speed as quickly as someone that's got those skills from early on. So I started swimming Brenton at uh, 11 due to a friend of mine uh, at Grafton high school, Gordon Kilby, who actually reminded me recently that uh, I reminded him actually, he commented on a post I put up about my Cairns Ironman performance. And uh, he said, I said you were the reason I started swimming good, and he said you were the reason I stopped. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so it was Gordon Kilby that got me into swimming in Grafton, Brenton. But uh, I fell in love with the domestic triathlon scene on TV in the 90s. The Too is Blue, the uh, Accenture series. It had a few name in sponsors over the years, but Brad Bevan was the dominant force in that domestic televised triathlon world, and he was what i wanted to be in life brenton so that was my early start at 11 in triathlon
1: and did you and haven't you gone on to sort of treat work with brad bevan and um probably a bunch of those guys that you aspired to to be
0: yeah it's i often think about that if you had a told that 11 year old star boy that one day you'd get to work you know in, in the end of their careers of you know with these guys i and athletes i should say i, I never would have believed it so I only ever had two paths in mind: triathlon or physio. So it's been fun to morph the two together.
1: Yeah, I can can imagine. Is there anything that you've uh, because I, for me personally, right? So coaching a lot, and um, and then when it comes to my own swimming, sometimes uh, sometimes I sort of take my own advice that so I'd give to other people, <laughs> and then sometimes I just I do my own thing because uh, yeah, it's just it's just what you do. What how's that been for for you in in treating uh, treating people? You know, have you? had injuries because perhaps you haven't followed the own advice you might give? What's that, that balance been like?
0: Yeah, that's a brilliant question. I'd love to say I always practice what I preach. Uh, However, I don't. And just like any athlete, I'm fallible to get it wrong sometimes more often than we get it right. So I've made most errors over the years. And in some ways I'm happy to be a Guinea pig because it does give you professional experience with these injuries uh but i think strava and the uptake of these digital platforms has kept 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 a lot of athletes including me quite accountable because i do often get a comment or two uh on my strava account if if the session seems a little bit long or hard you know i might get a couple of people (laughs) so commenting on that so there's an accountability that that's brought to me which is good but i've practically made you know, so many mistakes over the years. I went through about five or six bone stress injuries in a 10 year period. I haven't raced a marathon since New York in 2015. And this was to be my first one six years later. And the reason is I've sort of bounced from bone stress injury to bone stress injury. So that's really forged a real passion for me to understand that space better. And I love treating that in clinics now in clinic, uh, And the number one reason, so number two, top two reasons I've developed those over the years looking back were I was simply underfueled. I was in the treatment room, X amount of hours a day, all week, uh, not often not eating, just running from appointment to appointment. I'd train in the morning, train in the afternoon. I simply wasn't fueled enough. And I was just doing too much intensity running in there. So it was a perfect recipe for bone stress injuries.
1: And why does underfueling lead to bone stress injuries?
0: great question it so if we think about training to answer this simply brenton we know that it's not the training that makes us fitter it's the adaptation to the training so that adaptation is driven by our hormones our sex hormones testosterone estrogen growth hormone etc and when we're underfueled, that whole hormonal axis down regulates so we don't have the same fire and if you like it or hormone health or hormone profile that we otherwise would so that can manifest in uh, for female athletes in lack of menstruation cycles or irregular cycles Uh, for males that can manifest this is something that's been more openly discussed now and known and shared between practitioners and patients is erectile dysfunction so that can look like less morning erections for male athletes and i know it's Clunky and awkward, and everything else, but it's really important. Female athletes have a very clear scorecard, and that's did the monthly cycle happen? Yes or no. If not, there may be an underfueling component there, particularly if it's gone on for three consecutive months. So, these hormone, hormo- this hormonal hormonal downregulation affects the the reproductive systems, and it affects bone health. So, if there's not enough fuel on board, then bones can lose density. Which increases the risk of a bone stress injury, uh, and then it's a hard thing to have shown in the science, but it would make sense that if bones are at risk through underfueling, so too are soft tissues, tendon injuries, which is one of the most common triathlon-related injuries and swimming-related injuries. If we think about the shoulder, so to summarise and simply, it's we need those fuel levels to optimise our hormonal profile, which. They direct everything, whether it's our reproductive system, our tenocytes for our tendons, our bone cells for our bones. It's it's the key. I was chatting with a uh, a lady who does sort
1: of that kind of work with um, with the elite athletes, primarily females, and she's done a lot of work with the the women's AFL, um, talking to some of those teams and that kind of thing. And she was saying that when she was a an athlete she was a runner as a junior and it was basically if you had your cycle that month then it was seen as a, a failure you haven't trained hard enough maybe you've eaten too much it's like so it was so backwards and so her education now and what she's trying to teach and, and get across is that is is exactly that it's like you know your, your overall health is much more important than um, being you know, un- underweight and and really like to be able to, to run fast because that is not good long term and it's probably not going to be the best thing for your, your, sporting, um, your sporting results in the, in the long run as well.
0: Absolutely. It's not just about health because a lot of highly ambitious, motivated athletes would choose a performance outcome over their long-term health, like in the short term. Like it's, it's not unexpected. That's why they're elite athletes. Uh, but you don't have to choose between them. In fact, if you want optimal performance, you need to have an appropriate level of fueling uh, you need to have a maximized sex hormone profile, uh, all of those things. And in the swimming world, I, I can't recall the exact paper, but I recall Dr. Margot Mountjoy on an expert edition of the podcast I host, The Physical Performance Show. And she was she's an IOC um, sports doctor who was really the one that championed the change in naming from the female athlete triad to what we now know it as relative energy deficiency in sport because 50% of the athletes on the planet are males. It affects males too. They just don't have a menstruation cycle. Dr. Margot Mountjoy spoke about swimming out- outcomes and they ran trials where they looked at swimmers that were, that were purposefully under fueling versus those that were fueled appropriately. And they, I think it was a 400-meter time trial their 400 meter time trial performance was down in the group that wasn't fueled appropriately. So we don't have to choose between long-term health and right now performance measures. In fact, you can have both if you eat your cake and eat it too. If you have your cake and literally (laughs) eat it too. Uh, So there's a greater awareness and it's something that I'm so passionate about as a health practitioner is educating athletes about this. I look back at my 10 years of junior triathlon from 10 to 20 and i was likely under the whole time and i picked up low bone density as a 36 year old i was i found i had osteoporosis in my lumbar spine and i'd always lived a healthy life i was pretty stunned i went and had my bone density check done purely as a interest uh just to see what i was where i was at and uh couldn't believe the results now fortunately i picked it up i've worked Of diligently in the last four years, and I've improved that. It's now in the osteopenic range in my lumbar spine. 70% of our bone density is genetic, but I look back and I do think the lack of knowledge in the 90s and the underfueling was no doubt probably part of uh, what I'm now experiencing. There you go. Um, and with uh, with
1: the, the swimmers that you have come in to the clinic uh, and that you work with, is there is there something that you typically prescribe for them if they come in with shoulder injuries and those sorts of things? I mean, the majority of uh, issues that I come across when people come to our clinics is, is shoulder injuries, which is no surprise. And sometimes it's caused by technique. Uh, when we slow it down, we see there's a pretty uh, obvious reason why you're having pain and issues there, uh, but then some of it is uh, perhaps overuse or it might be just from sitting at the desk and having a bad setup. There's so many things that can cause it. Is there some, some pretty common ways to uh, overcome some of these injuries that you see?
0: Yeah, definitely. It, it always is prudent to have an accurate diagnosis, Brenton, because once that diagnosis is made, then you just apply the right principles to, to get the treatment outcome you're after. And to think simply about shoulder pain, uh, a UK colleague of mine, Adam Meekins, who is a well-known well shoulder-focused physio, Adam speaks about breaking down shoulder pain into really four groups. One's the weak shoulder, two's the stiff shoulder, three's the unstable shoulder, and four is the shoulder pain referred from the neck. So if we quickly rule out a few will be left with 80% of the presentations that the swim population, the triathlete population will experience. And that's the weak shoulder. So then the, the neck referred ones from nerve roots in the neck, uh, mind you, there can be very rare occasions where people have a bony growth on their shoulder. And that's why someone presents with shoulder pain. Often it's very good to have an X-ray the unstable shoulder, that can present problems. You know, this Brenton from the elite swimming world, there's often such great mobility in these elite swimmers and sometimes that can become pathological. So that's that excessive range of motion which we see in the elite swimming, swimmers. Uh, it can be people that have had trauma to their shoulder, so dislocations, etc. The stiff shoulder, you don't tend to see uh, outside of the very mature folks. So the people with glenohumeral osteoarthritis or arthropathy with a stiff shoulder in their 70s, 80s, whatever it may be, And that can also include frozen shoulders Now, frozen shoulder is often overdiagnosed. Sometimes we lose a bit of movement. We get a bit sore and stiff and we go, I've got a frozen shoulder, but a true frozen shoulder is, is often seen in the middle ages and more predominantly in women. And it will last 12 to 18 months. So we don't often see that in the active population uh, so much, but the last category, the first category we started with there, which is where, most of the listeners of your show brenton if they've had a sore shoulder or if they develop a sore shoulder will sit this is this weak shoulder so it's a soft tissue injury to the shoulder and it tends to be most of the time a tendon driven pathology or pain so it's a tendinopathy that term tendinitis is now dead in the water Uh, we talk about tendinopathies and quite simply the reason it gets sore is because The training workload, like we touched on at the very start, has exceeded that shoulder or the rotator cuff's capacity to cope with that workload. So, the way we get that right is we increase that tissue capacity at the shoulder, and that's through exercise. But, Brenton, the exercise has to be progressive. You you can't get some exercises day one and still be doing them in six weeks. There needs to be gear changes along the way to make that harder and heavier, and therefore develop better strength and soft tissue. Uh, resilience i think you put that pretty well that's
1: uh that's interesting so uh yeah it's uh I'm just thinking of the uh yeah the swimmers that I have come across that, that do come in and they do have some issues with the with the shoulder and I think um you know thinking about a lot of them will have that will spend a bit of time out of the water to let their shoulder heal and then they'll get back into it now we sort of talked about this at the at the start what would be the maybe the right approach for those that have got pain um obviously they should go and see someone like yourself like a physio to go and get it, it treated but would that time out of the water if it's 3 or 4 weeks would that actually make it potentially make it worse
0: great question brenton i think if people think about injury rehabilitation or recovery as a two-sided coin and on one side of the coin you've got this strategy of calming symptoms down. So calming down the upset, sore shoulder. Uh, how do we calm it down? You just mentioned it, Brenton. It might be necessary or it might be wise to have a period out of the water. So whether that's three days or two sessions or one week or two weeks, uh, that sometimes is a key requirement to get a timely outcome with recovery. Someone needs just to chill out Take some time out. Let the shoulder settle down. So that's reducing pain. That can also be achieved through medication, anti-inflammatories, for example, when appropriate, analgesics where appropriate. Occasionally, you might have a reactive bursitis in a shoulder that could benefit from a cortisone, in, uh, corticosteroid injection. Uh, these are all calming down strategies. Soft tissue work, manual therapies, you know, all the host that, all the things that that encompasses. So that's one side of the coin. The other side, Brenton is uh, the building up the strength and conditioning so they're both required where people often get disappointed and you would have seen this and disillusioned is they take the time out it feels better because they're not using it they're relieved they're happy coach is happy let's get back in they get back in the water and the shoulder gets sore again and the reason for that is because the swimmer or the athlete hasn't addressed that strength deficit or decrement that existed So when people are out of the pool, it is an ideal time to be working on that shoulder strength deficit, and that's got to be objectified. It's no good just throwing a bunch of stuff. You know, you need to know where your gaps are, what the numbers are, and then you get to work to improve it because we know that what's measured gets improved, right?
1: And how how do they, what are some of those things that they should be measuring and, and how would they go about it or how would a professional like yourself go about it?
0: Yeah, it's great. Uh, I term it sort of in my notes, I even put capacity testing. So if it's a case of a shoulder, we'll use a a handheld dynamometer like this, uh, where you have a a swimmer pushing into it to a couple of different ways. You can test it, a, a make test or a break test. So developing force maximally or just quick hard force development. And you'll have a swimmer up in say the abducted 90 degrees, it's a common piece of gear here. It's going out of the room right now uh, to the next room, but you'll have a swimmer up in, say, a 90-90 position, externally rotating the wall to do that. Uh, internal rotation, we'll test that. Uh, flexion, we will test that often. Abduction. So, all the key areas. We might do something as simple as a push-up test. How many push-ups can someone do before their shoulder gets sore? Uh, so, we're thinking locally about the shoulder. And then there's other tests we might do, Brenton, further afield. So, we might want to get some side bridge measures or some hip capacity testing done as well because we know that there's a whole kinetic chain that's involved the swimming right Mm. yeah fantastic well that's um that's
1: uh answered a lot of questions that i that i had for you um being having the expertise that that you've got and I, i like the fact that you're a triathlete a swimmer yourself uh because i think there's so much that you can you can take on board from your own experience when you're delivering that That advice and because often we and I was a junior uh, a lot of my teammates would go and see um, physios and they'd they'd say like don't swim for two weeks and it's like you got you don't swim do you like you you probably don't do any uh, or much sport it's like you so then you know we ended up changing and and seeing people who knew the sport and knew what had to be done and and the results from that um you know were, were a lot better rather than just telling people to stop doing completely what they were that doing and they because you lose your swimming fitness and you feel for water so quickly and so we you, know, you needed strategies to to mitigate that and so often that would be kicking with a, a kickboard if you couldn't swim at all if you had really bad shoulders but um, you know, having people who've got that experience because it helps so much in in physio so um, yeah I think it's it's great that you've got such a, um, a depth of experience um, in, in both of those worlds
0: and on that, I often say it's it's easy and often lazy advice. Sometimes it's entirely appropriate, but when it's appropriate, fine, because there's times when people need to take time out. But uh, bone stress injury, you know, you can't run through that. A really stirred up shoulder that you can't swim 50 meters with, right, out of the pool. But it's easy and lazy to often just say, take time out. It's, it's difficult to work with an athlete to get them finding their zone of tolerance. So if someone is being getting, given that advice, ask questions about why, ask questions about what you need to do in that downtime, but maximize it. There's, there's stuff you typically could and should be doing. Yeah, it's the, it's the equivalent of like
1: a swim coach saying, you're dropping your elbow, you're dropping your elbow, get it up. It's like, well, how do you do it? You know, it's like most people don't know how to, how to do it or how to develop it. So it's, it's very easy to say what they're doing wrong. The harder thing is to give them a way or a method to be able to to change it and ex- explain what they need to be doing rather than just telling them what they're doing wrong. And it really it frustrates me as a coach when um, you know when people will get told uh, those sorts of things, those simple like one-off sentences or or words. But it's like, no, give me something to actually do to, to change it. Don't just tell me that I'm drop my elbow all the time. Like it's yeah, I say it all the time. it, uh, it frustrates me as a coach.
0: The other frustration I have, Brenton, just like you shared there is lack of communication between therapists and coaches. You would have seen it over the years. I've been told I can't swim for this many weeks and you're left sort of as a coach going, well, okay, uh, what else did they say? Like, in my opinion, that should never happen. There should be a phone call, a text message. It doesn't take much to the coach to say, here's where we're up to. This is what the athlete can do. Let's work together to make sure they're back as soon as they can. I, I assume over the years particularly in the juniors you might have seen that happen a fair bit where the coach is pulling their hair out going well where are you up to with this <laughs> how long is it going to take <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh, that's exactly right
1: well um brad thanks so much for being on the on the podcast and uh for those listening where can where are you based uh if they're if they need a good physio and um and where can they get in touch with
0: you yeah thanks brent uh i'm based on the gold coast australia uh the, the, the physio practices pogo physio i uh led it for 14 15 years more or less since i graduated and brenton a lot of conditions and this has been one great thing out of covid one one great thing that is most things can be actually treated remotely uh, because normally with these endurance overuse injuries it's a mismatch of load and capacity so as long as you're working on the load of the athlete and building up capacity uh, you can get an outcome so if someone did need a hand, happy to help, happy to get emails, b.beer at pogophysio.com.au um, and uh, available. Just on, I'm on all the socials as well at Brad underscore beer, Brenton. Fantastic. Well, Brad,
1: thanks so much. And I uh, appreciate you jumping on, sharing your experience with uh, with the listeners. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. I was uh, great to be a guest on, on your show as well. And your 270 odd episodes deep now so you've been um, you've been doing that for for a while and uh, congratulations on on doing that many episodes as well because it's uh, as a host myself like I know um the the time it takes to to do this but I think personally too it's it can be a bit of a uh not a, a selfish thing in a way where it's like you get to learn so much and so um I've really learned a lot today and uh, some stuff I can apply to my own swimming into my coaching so uh from a selfish point of view thank you for uh, for sharing all this tea
0: Oh, uh, well, uh, it's mutual. I've been working on my power diamond, uh, Brenton, in my swim stroke. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com.